So, good morning, good evening, good afternoon, good late night, depending on where you are in the world. We're going to talk today about a few things, but before we get started, wanted to say thank you for Sax Girl Hornboy, um, our very first member on our YouTube uh, membership channel. Membership helps us, you know, it's, it's like Patreon and some of the other things. Uh, it helps us... Uh, super chat buttons, all these things help us get life-saving information out all the way across the world. And uh, if you're curious about it, a little bit less than half of our uh, views are in the United States, a little bit over half are elsewhere in the world. Uh, in terms of patient care, we do uh, see patients, we do consult with folks uh, in South America, Central America, Europe, uh, Middle East, Asia, China is our number five country for, um, for uh, downloads for our, um, our audio, audible and our audio information. So uh, if you, you don't think much of the Chinese government and you don't think much of the politics, well, you know, I, I don't think much of politics either. I try to stay out of it. And, and in fact, what I'm going to do is reiterate a couple of things. Um, and why am I doing that? Well, it's, uh, we're coming off of a two-year pandemic that just wreaked havoc with health, economy, uh, and lives across the world. Yeah. And many people thought this, this bug that created it was a bug that happened to uh, attack you differently depending on how you voted. Um, Obviously, I'm being a little bit sarcastic there, but you know, despite the fact that I may try, try to stay out of politics, the uh, and you may think, well, this is medical stuff. How can that get political? Well, it it does, and it did, and it will. One of the bigger reasons I'm bringing that up is that we are, uh, I think, we're coming into a revolution in terms of the pharmaceutical care for diabetes and obesity, or diabetes and overweight, not obesity, uh, in any level of, of overweight uh, condition. And <clears throat> I will talk a lot about some of the new drugs that are coming out. The, for those of you who are familiar with the terms, the SGLT2s, and especially the GLP1s, and we're going to uh, talk a little bit today about a twin cretin. It's a, it's a, slightly different kind of medication. Many people think it's just a, uh, another version of the GLP-1s, like um, Ozempic. It's different. It's called terzepatide. I've gotten a lot of questions and calls about terzepatide. We'll have a, a brief two-slide uh, discussion about terzepatide today, and we will um, then get into another biological medical issue, which again has been turned into a big political issue, and that is COVID-19 infection. So let me step back and, and, and make a couple of comments about my role and what I'm saying and what I mean when I'm saying it. So I'll tell you what I know about the evidence. One of the bigger issues that you see, one of the biggest problems, in fact, in uh, social media is misinformation. It's interesting I don't think that misinformation started with social, social media. Um, I've got a very different impression on misinformation. I, 
<clears throat> when I, I was at Hopkins for a few years uh, early in my career, and um, at Hopkins, we used to talk about what we called um, denominator medicine. In other words, the rest of the medical community is talking about this one patient. We were talking about the whole population. And once you began looking at the whole population, things began to look very, very differently. And unfortunately, what you hear on the internet is some doctor giving an opinion based on one patient that they've seen or one patient giving an opinion on what they have, what they have experienced as an individual. Um, one of my original, I had two original goals in, in starting this channel. One was to start talking more about prevention which is very uh, unusual. And to especially to talk about prevention from a trained uh, preventive medicine specialist perspective. And the other thing was to give more of the facts uh, as I see them, as you actually, as an epidemiologist. Uh, an epidemiologist is someone who looks at the quality of the information to say, okay, Here's what we do know. Here's what we don't know. And you'll see that in a couple of the studies that we talk about today, a little bit later about um, long COVID uh, resulting in uh, increased risk for diabetes, increased risk for other diseases. There were a couple of studies there. One of them's a little bit better than, other, than the other in a couple of ways, but both of them are very, very informative for us as we begin to understand better our risk in the post-COVID world. So again, I'll tell you what I know about the evidence. I'll include as much detail as possible. And yep, I've worn people out with detail. You know, they say, hey, doc, you're getting way too deep into the weeds. Just give me the facts. Just tell me what to do. And if you want to be just told what to do, this is not a good channel for you. Um, that's not the way I tend to approach it. I give you the facts in as much detail as I can, so you can make your own choices. I'll tell you what I do, you know, quite often patients will go through that long litany with me and then they say, got it doc, understand. If you had this, what I, if you were in my situation, what would you do? And I'll be happy to tell that as well. What I won't do, I won't tell you what to do and I won't make cho choices for you. So, as I mentioned, today we're going to be talking about a couple of things. Again, another uh, touch on that topic of uh, the new medication classes coming out for diabetes and overweight, weight loss. Uh, the, that, that will be a short uh, content, and then we'll go into the long content, and it's about long COVID, and it is more than just a flu. And, you know, we may have some haters on here that want to uh, say, no, it's just the flu. And we may have some folks try to dogpile us. They've done it many times when we talked about vaccine. If we do, hopefully we'll deal with it. So previous topics have been, you know, it's, it's one thing to hear from a dry old uh, doc, and epi especially epidemiologist type who's just talking about details. It's very different to hear from a patient. And Lois is very, very good at sharing her information. She got into a position where she really didn't want to have uh, procedures, but she agreed. And she tells her story about how it happened and why she agreed. And uh, her post-event her post, uh, analysis, very, very interesting. And 
from a human looking at this from the inside out kind of perspective. Very different perspective, again, from me scientifically and dryly analyzing and dissecting it. We've, uh, as I've said, we're, we'll continue to cover a lot of information on the, uh, the new anti-diabetic drugs and the, and the weight loss drugs. Um, <clears throat> we talked uh, recently about intermittent fasting on aging and cardiovascular disease. If you're new to this channel, if you haven't been here, basically what we're about is helping people understand, first of all, become aware of the things that are really killing and disabling more of us than anything else. And the reality is, it's a lot simpler than we think. And unfortunately, it's not exactly what your doctor thinks, probably. Um, and this is not just an internet doc. It's not just me saying that. I'm, I'm quoting uh, science, scientific evidence. Uh, first started coming out from my old colleagues at, at Hopkins, but Mayo and Harvard have all started getting into the, uh, to the facts that two thirds of primary care docs here in the US don't know how to diagnose prediabetes, let alone manage it. So we've got, a, we've got a problem in terms of our medical establishment getting up to speed and catching up with uh, prediabetes. A little bit too much focus on LDL and not enough focus on diabetes. So you're in, a, in that old adage, buyer beware in terms of healthcare. Now, one of the things that we're doing is, again, trying to provide information for you so you know what to ask your doctor, you know the conversations to have. Um, and within just a few hours, you can learn a lot more than most doctors know about, uh, about prediabetes, diabetes, cardiovascular plaque, cardiovascular inflammation, the things that really drive heart attacks, strokes, you know, these are the number one cause of heart attacks, number one cause of strokes, number one cause of uh, blindness, and number one cause of dialysis, kidney disease. So it's not like these are unimportant issues. I would suggest you take a look. Most of these courses now, by the way, are about, well, between one and three hours, depending on how quickly you go through it. And most of them you can, uh, uh, you can access for free. Uh, if you have any questions about how, how to access it, we're not trying to make money on these. We're just trying to get that information out there. I'm not going to talk about the subscription plans or the book today. I'm going to go straight into the uh, short form content. Terzepatide. Terzepatide was covered in a New England Journal article uh, recently, you see this over in the bottom right-hand corner, that NEJM stands for New England Journal of Medicine. It's the number one journal in the world for medicine and in terms of hot-breaking new news. And the hot-breaking new news here is yet another uh, medication, which is, you know, it's, it's similar to the glip ones, but it's different. It's, it's, uh, it's also a, called a GIP and glip one an incretin, uh, uh, glucagon incretin uh, proton uh, protease agonist and a glucagon-like protein uh, one agonist. I'm, you, you see, I'm even stumbling over the names. Don't worry about the names, but just be aware that it's a new drug. Um, I'm blanking on the name of it. Maybe somebody can remind me. It became available uh, just a few months ago. Uh, it, these drugs are, are sort of like, 
statins and especially like uh, metformin in that we know a couple of the mechanisms, but we don't really understand all of them. If you look at the GLP-1 uh, Ozempic, there's actually a significant amount of research going on about, um, about information uh, on uh, reward center activities in the nucleus. And why does that matter? Addiction. There's actually been significant amounts of research being done with addiction with GLP ones uh, for alcohol addiction, uh, coke addiction, narcotic addiction, in addition to the addiction that we tend to talk about here in terms of uh, food and carb addictions. So again, a lot of information coming out. Now, terzepatide is, like I said, a little bit uh, like the GLP-1. It's got some GLP-1 uh, activities similar to Ozempic, but it has some other impact, some other mechanism as well. And when you put those two together, they had a big increase on the impact. So I've had a lot of folks call me recently say, or send emails and saying, hey, doc, what do you know about that new uh, medication, terzepatide? Um, and again, when I get over my senior word-finding moment, I'll remember the uh, Manjara, I think, Manjaro, um, the brand name. I've had a lot of people calling about that, and um, there's a lot of potential advantage to this. Do I recommend going out and trying it? You know, I... I am not in a big hurry to try terzepatide with patients at this point. I do think, and I feel very strongly, that not nearly enough patients are on the currently available glipoins, saxagglutin, liraglutide, uh, ozempic, uh, some of the others. I also feel very strongly that there are not nearly enough patients that are on the um, SGLT2s, and you, many of you have heard those names, um, Jardiance, Farzaga. Both of those drug classes have been out long enough. They've gone through all of the pre-market uh, testing, the safety testing, and there are uh, millions of people that have used these drugs with good experience. So I think there's, a, a, there's clearly a good safety record for those drugs. Why aren't a lot of people... Uh, a lot more people on them because they cost so much. Um, the SGLT2s like Farziga and uh, uh, <clears throat> some of the others in the area of $700 per month. Uh, and the GLP ones are even more, closer to 1000 per month. So we're in that phase where Big Pharma has demonstrated very, very uh, positive risk benefits for these medications but now they're extracting their, they're making their fortunes off of it. Um, as I've covered in other, in a couple of other videos, there does appear to be some loss of, um, <clears throat> of patent for one of the uh, GLP ones over the next year. I expect within two to three years, you'll see these drugs uh, become much, much more widespread. Now, another comment about the SURPASS trials that uh, were just published a few months ago in the New England Journal. They were done out of the US, UK, and Argentina. 
Uh, we continue to make progress on these uh, with diabetes. Their endpoints are the same endpoints that people are accomplishing every day with lifestyle. Weight loss and decreasing your A1C in the absence of hypoglycemia. Um, that's one of the other big advantages to these drugs. Um, the, the older uh, drugs for diabetes tended to have risk for hypoglycemia, weight loss, I mean, uh, weight gain. Insulin is, a, is the worst. It, it has significant risk for both uh, hypoglycemia, which can be fatal, and it has a lot of weight gain which becomes fatal on, a, it's more of a long-term death. Um, the, again, the newer medications are doing much better. Now, um, you cannot out-prescribe, you still can't out-prescribe a lifestyle. You can't out-stint a lifestyle. You can't out-bypass a lifestyle. Lifestyle's cheaper, it's safer, but it takes discipline. And it's, uh, discipline is often not easy. For those of us that have gone low carb, we do realize that going low carb makes it easier. It, it stops that glycemic roller coaster that you get with your carb-driven diets. So as more people are exposed to and infected by SARS-CoV-2, reports of patients who experience persistent symptoms or organ dysfunction after acute infection uh, develop post-COVID conditions. And that has been, we've seen a lot of increase with it. I've personally seen it with my own patient group. We're going to talk about a couple of studies this morning, which are showing some significant increase in risk post-COVID. So the first one is a CDC report uh, in the MMWR, Morbidity Mortality Weekly Report. Post-COVID conditions among adult COVID-19 survivors age 18 to 64 and greater than 65. This is in uh, March, 2020 and November, 2021. This was a big study, 353, uh, 164 adults. They either received a COVID-19 diagnosis or a positive COVID test. This was in the Cerner EHR, electronic health record. So Cerner is a, an off the shelf uh, electronic medical record one of the big advantages of medical records over the old paper medical record days is that you can do studies like this and um, you can get some very, very good information out of them. So what they looked at was the incidence of 26 different clinical conditions, 30 days to a year after the infection. One in five adults aged 18 and older have a condition that might be related to their previous COVID 19 illness. Let me repeat that and take a look at that image just to make sure that you got it. One in five of us, 20% of us, very well may have some issues um, neurological, mental health issues, kidney issues, musculoskeletal conditions, blood clots, vascular issues, uh, respiratory conditions, cardiovascular conditions. I say that as uh, <clears throat> you hear me sniffle and snort. I had my own issues, and I do think that I've got a little bit of post-COVID from that. I'm very lucky, though, that I'll certainly survive having a, a, a six-month cold. COVID-19 survivors have twice the risk for developing pulmonary embolism. 
that is often a cause of death. I mean, the pulmonary embolism is incredibly serious. The most common incident conditions were respiratory symptoms and musculoskeletal pain. Cardiac dysrhythmias, uh, like uh, atrial fib, they were higher among patients 18 to 64, as well as uh, musculoskeletal pain we mentioned before. Those older than 65 had higher risk for renal failure, stroke, type 2 diabetes, muscle disorder, neurological and mental health condition. And I've seen this. I, I had a patient uh, that I'm thinking about right now. I won't men mention any demographics to not identify the patient, but this patient had uh, um, glucose peaks uh, up around 160, 180, uh, during a glucose challenge and had been stable on that for uh, years. And uh, insulin peaks around 50 to 70, not bad. Then post-COVID went up to um, glucose levels of 220 and uh, insulin levels of 250. So they clearly had enough, uh, I mean, clearly their insulin resistance just went out the roof. Um, Clearly, they were making enough insulin uh, to hit these higher levels, but obviously, they're not going. Their pancreas is not going to do that for years. It will, they will get to, to where they're uh, not able to make insulin unless they slowed down. And this was a very good patient. Uh, they are very slow in terms of carb intake, so uh, she will maintain a healthy pancreas. So discussion points on this. this. This was a very, very large study, uh, over 300,000 cases, over a million controls. They pulled it out of electronic medical records, so that's got its pluses and its minuses. There were not much details about what type of respiratory problems they had. This was, you know, the, the study was not being done in a controlled environment where they had, okay, these are the symptoms we're looking for. You just pulled what you could out of it. And there was not much detail about initiation or increase of diabetes. Again, uh, there is a lot more to discover in terms of increased risk from diabetes associated with post-COVID. Now, here's the, the second study that I mentioned. This one was published in The Lancet. Uh, one of the, it, it's not, The Lancet has a reputation. It's, again, one of the better journals in the world for medicine. It's, it tends to uh, fire, pull the trigger a little bit quicker. So they've had to retract a few, a few more things than you would see retractions in New England Journal or, or a couple of the other journals out there, like Nature Medicine. But it's a really, really good journal. Um, this study was titled Risks and Burdens of Incident Diabetes in Long COVID a cohort study. So this is getting a little bit more towards my specific area um, okay, how much, we, we know that we're getting a lot of post-COVID related conditions, most commonly respiratory musculoskeletal. I'm seeing a lot of them. I don't work in those areas. I work in diabetes and prediabetes, and I'm seeing it with diabetes and prediabetes, and that's what this study is looking at. The authors looked at the medical records of more than 180,000 people who had survived for longer than a month after catching COVID-19. They compared results with 4 million people without COVID infection who had used the VA healthcare system. 
people who had COVID-19 were more were 40% more likely to develop full-blown diabetes up to a year later. Hospitalization or ICU admission tripled that risk to more than double. Uh, subjects were mostly older, white men with hypertension and overweight. Now, how much of that is because it was in the VA system? That's one of those areas where, as an epidemiologist, you begin to start asking uh, questions. And they had some information about that. I think we've known from, uh, from the beginning, you tended to see more problems in uh, older people. Uh, you tended to see early on more problems with uh, older white males. So there's still that signal there. How significant and important is it? Probably not very at this point. So discussion points. This didn't cover cases that were not tested or diagnosed. Now, that could actually end up cutting both ways. That could mean that, and I think it probably means this, that there were, um, there's probably more risk associated with this than we're seeing because what we're not recognizing is that a lot of people had cases that really didn't make it through the cut point to get labeled as a case. There's another way of looking at it. Undiagnosed COVID cases were included for the, in, the, in the controls. And so that means diagnosed cases had, uh, increased risk, not uh, undiagnosed cases. So again, you could cut both ways. What about preventive measures, masks, vaccines? Well, you know, it still depends on what you believe about those. And again, masks and vaccines appear to help and have a, have a good uh, risk-benefit equation depending on your political leanings. Again, pardon the sarcasm. If you believe the vaccines decrease the probability of having a diagnosed case, then this adds to the risk side of not getting to the, getting the jab. As folks, as I've made very clear from day one, I am uh, pro-vaccine uh, for this. I have no, um, no argument with folks that say, yes, there's risk with these vaccines. There's risk with every vaccine that, that we've used. The real issue is, again, benefits versus risk and weighing those. And I'm clearly on the side of, I've had uh, my first jab, second jab, third jab, and fourth. More discussion. Lots of arguments about the vaccines. Most arguments about the vaccines were related to safety. My position from day one, no vaccines are 100% safe, just like trips in cars and airplanes. If you want to, well, I won't go there. This study doesn't speak to that. Other arguments against vaccines were that there was limited benefit. COVID is simply another cold or a respiratory infection, upper respiratory infection. Hmm. Uh, I'm not I'm not hearing as many people say that, but I'm still hearing people say, well, it's not that big of a deal. Well, <clears throat> this study adds to the side of the equation that COVID is not just another cold. So as I said, what do I do? I, I tell you what I know about the evidence. I include detail as much as possible. Let you make your choice. I'm not going to tell you uh, what to do. I will tell you what I do. Thank you, Gilbert. So we got Sax Boy, I mean, Sax Girl Horn Boy uh, became a YouTube member. Thank you so much, uh, Sax Girl Horn Boy, helping us get that information out across the world. Bambi Grage, good to hear from you again. Bambi, can you raise ejection fraction of friends is 35? Yes, you can. Uh, there are medications that have done it. People have done it with lifestyle. 
And in fact, you know, you bring up a really good point. Uh, low ejection fraction, uh, for those of you that don't know, if you consider this bad visual as a, a uh, speaking of visuals, I have to point out, uh, that's our logo right there. I'm in Alabama, as you may have figured out. Um, and there's an old, a very old lighthouse here in uh, Mobile Bay that's famous. And that's a picture of it. And that uh, Jubilee uh, is, a, is a unique Mobile Bay thing that I'm not going to get into. But now let me go back to the digression that I was in a minute ago talking about Bambi's question. If you consider this the left ventricle of the heart, so it, fill, it expands and fills up with blood and then it squeezes. It doesn't, uh, you don't get 100% uh, ejection. So the ejection fraction is the amount that, that you have here when you've contracted and quote emptied it because you don't completely empty it divided by the amount when full. So when you have heart failure, and normal ejection fractions are 60%, in uh, you know, uh, and 50%. When, when you see people that have ejection fractions in, around 30%, 35, those are low. So there are several things that can cause that. Most of them are related back to prediabetes and diabetes. One of them is what we call a myocardial infarction. Uh, in other words, a part of the heart muscle let's say this part of the muscle just gets paralyzed and it can't contract. So that you, then you get a decrease in the ejection fraction. Uh, if you get significant decreases in ejection fraction, you have what we call uh, heart failure. Guess what the most important thing to do is if you have heart failure, exercise. So again, it all gets back to the very same thing and the very same components of exercise. Um, managing your weight, by far the most important thing, but then exercise. And both of those are uh, the most critical things for people that are in heart failure. And yes, they can improve their heart failure dramatically with those things. Are there drugs? Of course there are drugs, uh, and there are a host of drugs which uh, have impacts on ejection fraction. Great question. Thank you so much, Bambi. John Tocho, good morning. Slim chickens. I don't think I've seen you yet. Slim, good to have you here. Thank you. Margaret D., good morning from Winnipeg. Bobby Ocampo from the Philippines. Mabu, hey, God bless you for sa uh, saving lives. Thank you, Bobby, for your participation. John Tocho became a YouTube member. John, thank you so much. Again, this is helping us get uh, this information out across the world. Doesn't matter what your politics are. For me, I still think you need, all of us deserve to get access to life-saving information so we can take care of our health. So John says, I just went premium. Don't know how I missed this before. Thank you so much, John. Really appreciate it. So I think that's, uh, if you, as usual, Gilbert's on the ball. If you'll look up in the upper right-hand corner, he's showing you how to do that. You go right here and you can hit join. Sandra Dombra Dabrowski, greetings from Huntsville, Alabama. Greetings to you, Sandra. Thank you for joining. And Sandra's on Facebook. Most of our folks are coming in from YouTube, but we do have some Facebookers as well. 
my loisa es lao cabardo. Yo hablo un poquitísimo español. Es probablemente evidente. I speak a little bit of Spanish, and that's very little, very, very little, and that's probably obvious. But es lao Cabardo is not from, uh, Cabardo is from the Philippines. We do have a significant uh, following in the Philippines. Thank you for sharing that. Uh, and a, a lot of that comes from our team. Our team is uh, most of our production team, channel production team, like Gilbert, is located in the Philippines. Cebu, Manila, um, gosh, uh, Gilbert, if you can uh, remember the, the area that, um, that Aspen's from. Uh, and you feel comfortable letting us know, please do. Davao. Davao. And uh, he's near a place where there were significant, um, there was some significant violence. It was associated with uh, some religious. Um, yeah, Malawi. Yeah. So it actually made the global, the global news for a while. E.T. himself, about long-term side effects from Pfizer Vax. My first one went well. Although the other two, six months apart, chronic fatigue, always sleepy, brain fog, etc. Thanks for sharing, E.T. Sorry to hear that. Hot Wheels, 66. I had first two jabs, but never got the booster. The first two, I was sick, so do not want that again. You know, even getting, they talk about uh, decreased function or decreased uh, uh, protection if you don't get the third and fourth. Here's the thing. Um, the infection rates, I don't know if anybody's been keeping, how many people have been keeping up with it, but the infection rates have been as high as ever. Some of their peak rates just recently in a lot of places in the U.S., but the hospitalization rates have been very, very low. So the bottom line is there's a lot of protection going on. Bobby Ocampo, what's your comment on chromium for insulin sensitivity? There is some significant evidence that chromium is helpful. Um, I do think it's worth taking. It's like the lower or bottom tier uh, of supplements to consider taking with vitamin D3 being at the top, uh, niacin being at the top, especially if you have, for people with LP little a and some of the other uh, lipid associated issues. Good question. Um, I think magnesium is more important, for example, than chromium for a host of reasons. E.T. himself, not too fussy about the fourth. Uh, Slim Chickens, I'm currently on a Zempic. Thank you for sharing that. I want to try Wegovy, but my insurance doesn't cover it. It's $1,400 a month. You know, that's interesting. What we're starting to see is some programs where you're getting increased access. Uh, I noticed Medicare, for example, has some programs where uh, you can get access to Farziga. Uh, that's on the SGLT2 side. It also has uh, some access to Ozempic. M ball prevention is not profitable. That's correct. Uh, you know, it's like lifestyle. There's zero cost for that, and zero charge for that. And you know, I, I realized that when I went first went into medicine, didn't know what I wanted to do. Enjoyed surgery quite a bit, and. Prevention just seemed awful. It seemed like, uh, you know, the word, there were 
worse things. There were few worse things that I grew up in my life, worse than being a teacher or an accountant. I hated numbers and I hated, you know, the Charlie Brown. And when you go into preventive medicine, you end up looking at denominators. You look at numbers and you do teaching. So it's like, be careful what you, uh, what you say you'll never do. I, I ended up starting in the ER in my career. And there were so many experiences where I was running a code. Fifteen to $30,000 worth of, you know, just being expended on people who were already uh, practically dead by the time they got into the ER with heart attacks, strokes, things that they woulda, coulda, shoulda, never had. And here we're just, you know, sticking needles in them, intubating them, knowing that they're, we're not going to get them back. That was a frustrating pr process. And after enough of those in the ER, I came to a moment of truth and said, you know what? If this, you know, if my career is about me, then yeah, I'll continue to go on into some kind of surgical specialty. But if my career is really about helping people, I'm going to become an accountant and teacher and do preventive medicine. So I made my choice. Hot Wheels 66. I lost 50 pounds on a low carb, was pre-diabetic, losing 50. I've got a, a lot of people that lose their pre-diabetes altogether with significant weight loss like that. Hot Wheels. Thank you so much for sharing that. Was pre-diabetic with hypertension. Now all normal without medications. Thank you so much for sharing that. Bobby Ocampo, if fasting helps, why not have a long hospitalized fasting, say 20 days, supervised by medical practitioners in hospital or healthcare facilities? It's a really good question. It seems obvious, but the bottom line is uh, get your, find an insurance company that's going to pay for that. Most of them are going to say, no, you know what? Do a five-day fast. It's safe refeed for two or three days and do another five day fast. It's safe. Or one of the more practical, uh, uh, practical, relatively easy, you know, none, none of the fasting is easy. You know, food addiction is a big, big deal, but um, relative, these people that started at 300 pounds, you know, have, you know, major, major weight to lose. You see this in Jason Fong's book, for example, talking about a lot of people who do this every other day, fasting, and just do it for month after month after month after month. And that's the point, Bobby, because those kind of that kind of fasting is so safe, you're never going to get people to pay the thousands of dollars in the that it costs in the US to put somebody in the hospital. It's just that safe. It's just not easy. You know, if we did that, though, it would save so many dollars in terms of heart attacks. It would save lives. Again, prevention's not that well recognized or funded. EGA 0117, is taking the vaccine dangerous? Mm, gosh, it really depends on who you talk to. Uh, I obviously don't think it is. I'm one of those that took it. Uh, passing through. Hi. Good to hear from you. Iga 
117. Is the COVID vaccine, okay. Uh, I think, Ego, we may not, unless you get something a little bit more better quality than that on the questions, we may not be entertaining those. Fort Worth West Side, do all statins push one towards insulin resistance? Not all of them. And if so, how and at what dosage does this happen? It's a really good question, Fort Worth. So up until the development of patavastatin, which goes by a couple of, couple of names, uh, Pavasta is the most common uh, generic name, and Lavalo is the most common brand name. Patavastatin does not push you towards insulin resistance. Uh, and they have not lost their patent yet. So they're, you know, most insurance, they're very expensive because of that. And most insurance companies will give you a hard time paying for it because it's expensive. So, um, but even before that, there's a very simple, uh, easy to take statin and in these lower doses does not significantly increase. I, I use a lot of um, uh, oh gosh, I'm having a senior moment. Rosuvastatin, the brand name was Crestor. Use a ton of that, five milligrams a day or less. Uh, now, most docs end up using a much higher dose but, and most docs are looking at LDL levels when you actually look at uh, statins, they're sort of like these other drugs that we've been talking about that have multiple different effects. One of the effects of statins is to decrease cardiovascular inflammation. In other words, your immune system attacking the plaque in your artery wall. Well, uh, that's one of the reasons I don't give uh, uh, the most popular uh, statin um, <clears throat> because it doesn't work as well for uh, cardiovascular inflammation for um, um, for diabetics, and again, seventy percent of us have either of us with heart problems either have prediabetes or diabetes, and it's likely to be higher than seventy percent. So, <clears throat> uh, rosuvastatin five milligrams or less, and with rosuvastatin, you can take. I I actually have some people on two and a half milligrams once a week. I don't really recommend that, but anywhere between those and five milligrams a day are very, very commonly used doses by me at least. And those doses do not have a significant increase in terms of insulin resistance. I hope that helped Fort Worth. It was a great question. Thank you so much for bringing it up. John Tocho, if you had the Vax, how would you know if you had COVID-19 either before? That's a good question. Um, Really good question. And most of the time, what they're talking about is uh, proven by the, uh, the, the nasal swab test, not proven by the antibody. Great question. So what John's saying is, you know, if you get the vaccine, you're going to get a positive antibody test. So if they draw blood, you get the vaccine, they draw blood a little bit later and say, well, the antibody's positive. That's from the vaccine. How do you know whether it was the, the, um, an infection or not? In bald, but these medical records will be missing things such as vitamin D levels. Exactly, in bald. Thank you so much for bringing it up. And as I said, these are, uh, you know, you know what you all, what do you always see at the end of any academic research article? 
more research is needed on blank. And, and that's what happens. It's just a, an ongoing cycle. And that's one of the problems with these studies. They're great in terms of numbers. And um, I think that they do show a lot of power, a lot of reliability in terms of that perspective. But there are a host of questions that they have, they don't touch on at all. You know, what were the symptoms? What, you know, how, uh, what were the other conditions? For example, in this case, uh, <clears throat> What were the vitamin D levels? We know that's a very important uh, important item. Michael Sanders, hello from Arizona. Good news. Monsoon season has begun. Well, I guess that's going to cool things down in Arizona a little bit, and I bet you needed it. Love the rain. Thank you so much, Michael, for joining us and commenting. Fort Worth Westside, wonder if they ever did a study to determine how many who died from COVID were actually insulin resistant and very low vitamin D levels. They did enough studies to know that both of these were incredibly important. But the, the one about actually had insulin resistance reminds me of the whole thing about, um, uh, about dementia and insulin resistance. They know that insulin resistance is a major risk factor for dementia. But they don't know how big a risk factor it is because how many people, I have never seen a study which actually looks at full-blown uh, insulin uh, surveys, let alone even a, a oral glucose tolerance test. They, all, they just, when they look at this risk factor, they're just looking at A1C. Well, as we know, we've discussed it many times on this channel. If you're not eating carp, there are a whole bunch of reasons you can have a very low A1C but still be full-blown diabetic. In fact, the vast majority of my full-blown diabetic patients have low A1Cs. Why is that? Because they're not eating carbs. Uh, the American Association of Clinical Endocrinologists has said, don't make a diagnosis of uh, diabetes based on A1C for a whole host of other reasons. They didn't even mention that one, which is the most common in my practice. Um, anything that causes liver or kidney disease can change hemoglobin. Remember, it's not just the A1C part, it's the hemoglobin part. Glucose, when it's elevated in the blood, will bind to proteins. That's how it causes its damage, by the way. Hemoglobin is a protein. It's a protein. Heme, uh, hemoglobin carries heme, which in turn carries uh, uh, iron, which in turn carries oxygen. But we can actually estimate how high the glucose is over a three-month period by looking at how much glucose is bound to the protein in hemoglobin. So you go back, you look at that, that's what they're using for most of these studies. So they don't really know uh, how strong the risk of, um, of insulin resistance is for any of these diseases, COVID death being one of them. In fact, when you think about it, if you acknowledge, and I'm not the only one saying this, 90% of people that have diabetes don't know it, and 90% clearly, and it may be as low as two-thirds, maybe as low as half. With insulin resistance, it's clearly the 90%. It's the higher amount that have insulin resistance don't know it. When you realize all of those people with insulin resistance that don't know it are contaminating the, quote, 
control side of these studies, then you begin to realize the risk is much, much higher. They've seen a significant risk, but it's actually much higher than, they, than the researchers judged. Andrew McDonald, hi doctor, is testosterone levels something you look at in your patients? And if found to be low, do you recommend replacement? It's a great question and it's a long story. I'll just go down a little bit of a bunny hole over it. So uh, for a long time, many of us thought that testosterone might actually be a risk factor for heart attack and cardiovascular disease. That was based on the assumption that, you know, men get cardiovascular disease quicker, earlier than women. Uh, so therefore when the testosterone replacement uh, fad started happening, Many of us were very concerned about uh, potential increase in cardiovascular disease. That did not happen. In fact, there were uh, a significant number of studies. There were four key studies, and these happened between five and 10 years ago, looking at the risk for testosterone. It wasn't there. It did not increase risk for cardiovascular disease. <clears throat> now, the other thing that they found was it really didn't impact all of the things that people were hoping. What it did do was increase uh, people's sleep quality. So um, how much it actually helps is an argument point. I'm not gonna get into that debate. What I will say is on a practical basis, what do I do about it? And I don't get involved in it. For, it's a totally separate reason. Uh, testosterone is still classified as a controlled drug in most states. Um, I've been trying to get people access to better health care through telemedicine for 20 years. And um, now that it's becoming a, uh, you know, be careful what you ask for. The pandemic has created a whole new receptivity to telemedicine. And um after my third or fourth retirement, I'm again, busier than I've ever been, but happy doing a lot of work for this. I'm not going to jeopardize my ability to provide the medicine that I'm providing by also prescribing controlled drugs. Because when you, in, when you do controlled drugs by telemedicine, it becomes a very uh, significant, significant increase in risk. Now, uh, again, Andrew, I'm not saying I don't use it. I'm not saying that they're uh, inappropriate to use. I'm not saying you can't get these by telemedicine anymore. There are a couple of companies that specialize in this and are doing a good job. Do I recommend replacement? Again, it's uh, I, I think the the clinical data is just not that uh, that clear to support it yet. We got a super chat, uh, super chat, $20, tired looking for name. Thank you so much. Uh, it says thanks to Dr. Brewer and the PrevMed team. Thank you so much for that super chat, tired. Again, uh, that helps us get that this information out to the to the world. Is COVID vaccines, okay, and we got one of those. Mball, will they bother to check the records for early COVID treatment? Now, I don't think they're going to get much deeper on looking again at those records. I think what's going what needs to happen is, you know, further research. Life extension research. Tell also the new findings related to the vaccine is one of the possible causes 
of long COVID. Not going to go there yet. Haven't seen a whole lot of uh, stuff in that area. Evidence yet, uh, you know, high quality evidence. In ball, glucose can go crazy with many infections and not just COVID. Absolutely. That is a big deal. Any check on micro, microbiome? No. You know, as you, as you might guess, I mean, this is, microbiome is clearly not one of the issues that they're going to cover in that space. Okay, we've got, we're getting tons of comments now. Mm. And I've got seven minutes before my next meeting. I apologize, but I am not going <clears> to, <throat> I'll get to a few more. <clears throat> one of them is a, is a, a friend, Aura Ruth. How are you, Aura Ruth? Hi, Doc. My hubby got careless and sick with COVID. I got sick June 9th. I'm still antigen positive. O2 sat never went below 92. But I'm very weak. Thank you for sharing that. And I'm sorry to hear you're having a problem. Uh, M. Ball, the vaccine is like a seatbelt in the plane and forgetting to fuel the plane. <laughs> Uh, good point. It's make sure the uh, plane is fueled. <clears throat> Bobby Ocampo in the Philippines, our all cause mortality rate is lower with COVID. We have less death in 2020 than 2019. That is interesting. Death to, to pneumonia was down 50% from average. That is interesting. So, you know, as an epidemiologist or anybody, you start thinking about, well, you know, there were there was significant decrease in interpersonal interaction. So there were, you know, flu bottomed out. You just did not see that much flu during those two years. Um, maybe there's an issue that flu and other uh, infectious diseases were that big of, of, of a deal. You also begin to wonder about the age distribution. You know, of all the continents, the African continent was the least impacted by COVID. Why was that? Because they're of their age, their demographics, they are by far the youngest population in the world. Now, why are they the youngest population? Because so many of the older generations have died off from uh, AIDS, HIV. So <clears throat> there's always another story, isn't there? Exercise, Andrew McLeod, Again, we're going to blitz through a few more and then uh, have to leave within a minute or two. Andrew McDonald, can statins lower ejection fraction and or cause dilated cardiomath? That is not a common, uh, that would be a very unusual uh, reaction, Andrew. James Lester, just had a calcium score of 1250. I'm asymptomatic. I'll see my doctor this morning. Should I ask for a low dose of Crestor? I've been keto for four years and am now metabolically healthy. I, it's a great, this is a great one to end up on. So I ha I've had so many people come to see me. In fact, the, more, the most common reason for coming to see me is a positive calcium score. Then people will get religion. They will change their life. They'll lose 30 pounds. Uh, we'll get, a, you know, sometimes uh, medications. We'll get things done with them. And then they'll go back and they'll say, hey, I'm going to go do another calcium score because I expect to do a victory lap because it's going to reverse. Rare. I've had a couple of people that it reversed on, but that's rare. That's not the biology. It's not appropriate to expect that. 
In fact, if you understand the biology, James Lester, if you've done some things to improve, you're more likely to increase your calcification. But that's not always a bad thing because it's the plaque that doesn't show up on a calcium score that's dangerous. Once it's calcified, calcified plaque is stable. And I've covered plenty of studies on that. The Honda study is the, the one that was most visually out there. You could see the calcium. You could see the uh, decreased event rate in that population. So don't assume that uh, getting that calcium increased is a bad thing. Um, regarding the selection of statins and when I use statins, def I definitely do recommend that you uh, consider a statin. I don't usually, I've got a lot of patients that have very, very high LDL levels. When you do what I do, you get a lot of folks with what's called familial hypercholesterolemia. I get a lot of those. Um, but I don't routinely use a lot of statins just for LDL levels alone. I do recommend anyone with a positive calcium score to consider a statin. And like I said earlier, I usually don't come out of the blocks with a high dose. I usually come out with the uh, either Crestor 5 or lower or Zepatamag, you know, one of the generic biologic generics of, of uh, Lavalo. We are, I have to run to my next meeting. I've got a lot more comments. I appreciate the interest uh, and uh, hopefully we can uh, get to some of those next week. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening. For more information, please visit our website at prevmedhealth.com. To learn more, watch our videos on YouTube at Ford Brewer MD MPH. Thank you very much for your interest.